Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the second of four webinars on the theme of pilgrimage. This series is being sponsored by the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame. And this particular webinar, titled Becoming a Pilgrim People, is co-sponsored by the Center for Spirituality here at St. Mary's College and the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame. As I mentioned, it is the second of four pilgrimage webinars, and I'll say a bit more about the series at the end of our formal time together this afternoon. Because we have a limited amount of time and there's such great material to be shared and discussed, I'm going to go ahead and begin with the introductions and first mention that my name is Daniel Haran. Uh, I'm a Franciscan friar and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology here at St. Mary's College, where I also direct the Center for Spirituality. And it's an honor and a delight to welcome you to this webinar and to have our two distinguished panelists with us. A Jesuit priest from Quebec, Canada, Father André Bruyette, earned a graduate degree, earned graduate degrees, excuse me, in philosophy, history, and theology in both France and North America. He taught in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, prior to joining the faculty of the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, where he is Associate Professor of Systematic and Spiritual Theology. He has been a visiting professor at the Pontifical University in Madrid, Spain, the holder of the Anna and Donald Waite Endowed Chair in Jesuit Education at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, as well as a visiting professor at the Carmelite School of Theology to receive, to reset. That shows my Franciscan bias there, excuse me, tripping over a Carmelite Pontifical University in Rome. He is currently the general editor of the Classics of Western Spirituality, published by Paulus Press, and his most recent books embrace pilgrimage studies, including the monograph, The Pilgrim Paradigm, Faith in Motion, published by Paulus, and Pilgrimage as Spiritual Practice, a handbook for teachers, guides, and wayfarers, which was published by Fortress Press in 2022 and co-edited by his Boston College colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Bleckel. I'm also delighted to introduce Dr. Leila Karst, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where she teaches and writes at the intersection of liturgy and ecclesiology. She is working on a book manuscript on the theology of Christian pilgrimage and the pilgrim church. Her current research also explores the ways that racism, sexism, and sexual abuse have impacted our liturgical celebrations and the function of lament in addressing these liturgical challenges. Her publications include articles in the journals Liturgy and Practical Matters. She holds a PhD from Emory University and an MDiv from the University of Notre Dame. So welcome back, as it were, to South Bend, at least virtually. Father Andre will begin with his remarks, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be part of that webinar on the pilgrimage, and especially thinking through the lens of the racial justice and healing memory. So I'll proceed in three moments. So first to look at the foundational experience of pilgrimage that we find in the Bible, looking then in the second time at some resources from the pilgrimage tradition to sparkle or our theological imagination. And then finally end with two examples of contemporary pilgrimages that, that address themes related to today's discussions. And so on that first element on, so when we think of pilgrimage in a Judeo-Christian tradition, a foundational event is clearly the Exodus story, that very important moment of being led out of Egypt for the Hebrew people 
to be led then to the promised land, which is grounded in the call of Abraham to be on the move, the promise of progeny, the promise of a land and an invitation to trust also in the Lord. And so we see in that story that movements certainly towards a destination. Uh, so there's strong teleological element to, to that, to that walk in a way that we can say is a pilgrimage in a certain way, which is also a migration. And I think that's interesting to make the connection between those two realities. And so that's a walk that, that frees, that liberates the people. But as Michael Walker would say, it's not only that movement towards the promising, the covenant as is also extremely important in that regard, in the sense that the journey toward from Egypt out of slavery towards the promised land is one that will constitute the people, that will edify people, that will build a collective reality from a bunch of individuals. And they are constituted anew as a collective. And so that's very important as we think of pilgrimage, because our bias is to look at pilgrimage mostly as an individual reality, first and foremost. And so here we have collective element clearly emphasized. And another element that is also interesting in that Exodus story, as we think about pilgrimage movements, migration, is the ethical commitment that comes from the experience of being a foreigner, of being an alien, and then of being on the move and having to be welcomed, having to receive hospitality. So there's a light motif that we find in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that you should not molest or oppress an alien because you were once aliens in the land of Fiji. You were once pilgrims, you were once on the move and in need of being welcomed by others. That connects also with the very etymology of the word peregrinus, which is in a way a non-citizen, a foreigner, someone who is who's coming from outside in a way and needs to be welcomed. And so an experience of liberation, clearly in that case of being on the move, going towards a destination that creates a collective, a people, but that also produces an ethical commitment that would be repeated more than once throughout the Hebrew Bible. So that's a foundational experience, both for liberation theologists, obviously, but, but also when we think of pilgrimage in general. And so looking more broadly at the Christian tradition of, of pilgrimage, I've I'm highlighting here some elements that are interesting to draw from as resources, even as we think of pilgrimage for contemporary reality. So drawing from the tradition as a, some kind of ressourcement and enriching our theological imagination. So a few elements. First of all, memory. A pilgrimage is always a return to, even if one goes to a place for the first time, there's always a connection, a memorial connection with events or with people, with individuals that kind of brings us in to the experience. 
I thought that's important to attend to the memory, to potentially increase then the connection with what is memorialized and maybe even potentially heal. So people going, pilgrims going to Jerusalem want to kind of foster their connection with Christ and the events in his life. Or Americans going to Ireland or Italy or other places where they're coming from want to reconnect with their roots, with their family history by going to the place. And this is the second element that is very important. First memory, then place. Because usually pilgrimage as a destination, we're going somewhere. And a place, as Philip Sheldrake would say, is at the intersection of a space and environment and, you know, a human narrative that brings meaning to that particular location. So it's not simply any space, but that is a space that has a special meaning brought about by memory and by that human narrative. Then that can be remembered and also that can be an evocation of what is most precious. And so the place would usually crystallize a memory. So this monumental value in a way that is celebrated in a given location. So that can be a person that is commemorated or an event and both of them being localized. People going to Fatima while they want to see and pray at the place where the Virgin Mary appeared to the young shepherds. Going to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, one wants to see the burial place of St. Peter, the relics, which is also a very important theme for medieval pilgrimages, especially. Or a more contemporary way, certain bridge in Salma, Alabama, is also you know, a place of, of pilgrimage where people want to connect to a memory or, or also other difficult memories. Concentration camp of Auschwitz can also be a place that embodies the memory that one wants to connect with. And so embodiment is a third element that is very important for pilgrimage. The archetypal pilgrimage is certainly walking pilgrimage, where one experiences the joy and weaknesses and limitations of the body. But that embodiment, in a genuine sense, is an invitation also to simply be present to the experience, to be present to the place, to be present to one's body, both in its in the ruggedness of the experience, in the necessity to slow down from one's regular rhythm in life, but to bring one's own self to that experience in a radical way. And it is not opposed and on the contrary can help the interior dimension of any pilgrimage experience. But embodiment is really important. Again, walking pilgrimage, that would be the archetype, but there's other ways of doing pilgrimages that will also be very embodied, but at the very important dimensions. A fourth element that I want to highlight is the importance of movement, the realization that one is on the way. When the Second Vatican Council decided to use the image of the pilgrim church to 
to describe the reality of the church on earth, there was that emphasis on recognizing that we are on the way. Even in the title of this webinar, Becoming a Pilgrim People, we see twice the idea of change, of movement, by becoming what one is not yet, and becoming a pilgrim people, so a people on the move, a people that is that has not arrived, that is not arrived yet. And so the pilgrim ethos really emphasizes that reaching even the destination is not the end of the process. So there's always an invitation to go further, to go beyond, to continue the journey. So already in and on itself, it must be a journey, even if it's simply an inner pilgrimage. But in a very physical pilgrimage, there's clearly a sense of destination and movement. Then another characteristic of pilgrimage is the reality of the many encounters that will happen along the way. So either within a group of pilgrims, within pilgrims that are coming from different horizons, or with people along the way, both literally along the way on the road or at the destination. So anthropologists Victor Turner and Eddie Turner identified some kind of anti-structural dimension of pilgrimage. So by a reconfiguration of the social group and a certain egalitarian quality of pilgrimage where you know, social differences will be leveled out up to a certain point. And people going on the Camino, for example, experience that rich diversity of encounters, a great variety of people whose path they would never have crossed otherwise. And then leading, ideally, to a certain transformation in through that whole process. Memory plays, embodiment, movement, then encounters. Potential also encounter with the divine, especially in Christian pilgrimages. That's certainly an important element that we want to take into consideration. So in for the last minutes of this presentation, I just want to highlight two contemporary pilgrimage experiences that relate in a way to our theme of racial justice and healing of memories. One of them is from a colleague from the University of Flint, Michigan, Mary Jo Kitzman, who wrote a very beautiful essay about an experience that she had actually a course that she built with her student of an urban pilgrimage. Uh, so to the city of Flint, Michigan. And so we know that this is a city that is famous or infamous because of the problem with drinking water, but also the, de the destruction of many factories. So the industrial base that has left the city, leaving it very impoverished. And so she designed a course at a state university where students have to build a walking pilgrimage within the city. So this is an urban pilgrimage to the, the city, you see those places that had meaning. So those large automobile plants that have been sometimes completely destroyed and where nothing is left but, but a wasteland and industrial waste. And then connecting the students with their own family history because they are from the region and sometimes they are parents, grandparents, 
what worked in those factories. And then also connecting though with the people who are living there now, living in the city in sometimes difficult situations. And for example, she writes of one stop that they made to the Catholic parish there in Flint, which commissioned a black Madonna, Our Lady of Flint, as a symbol of resilience and hope for their community. And so that's a very interesting example and experience of contemporary urban pilgrimage in the context of the course. Then the last experience I want to highlight is that of a Canadian canoe pilgrimage that was done in 2017 and organized by young Jesuits in Canada. And so they traveled by canoe with other people. So from St. Mary along the Hurons, Midland, Ontario, the Shrine of the Canadian Martyrs, to Kanawake near Montreal, which is the Shrine of Sequita. And so following the route that Native people had taken for centuries, and then that the missionaries also took when they were invited by the natives for their missionary work. And so the timing was very specific. It was the year of the 150th anniversary of the Canadian Confederation, but it was also a few months, years after the release of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada that dealt with Indigenous residential schools. And so this is a few years before the 2021 discovery of unmarked graves in Kamloops, British Columbia in 2021 that sparked international interest. But already the report was making clear that there had been a cultural genocide that was perpetrated by the Canadian government with the help of Christian churches and communities. And so that pilgrimage basically was a desire, an attempt to bring people together for a month and some of them for shorter periods of time. So indigenous and non-indigenous, French speakers, English speakers, young and young people who are more mature, some elders even joined with under the theme of reconciliation, will certainly to promote dialogues by living together, by sharing meals, by paddling together, by sharing traditions, certainly emphasizing that invitation to journey together. It's very much at the heart of the pilgrimage. And also to be in dialogue with communities that were encountered along the way. So communities that were receiving the pilgrims, so native communities, especially the early part of the journey and then also French-speaking and English-speaking communities as they move more towards Quebec. So these pilgrimages are not, so are examples. They're not necessarily models or they're not necessarily easily reproduced, but they were opportunities for encounters to share in that challenging journey of dealing memory, dealing with the past and building bridges and building a future together. And so I think that these elements offer us some resources to think about pilgrimage as, as a potential locus for theological reflection, certainly, but also for action and change in favor of racial justice and healing of memory. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Father Andre. That was really a lot for us to think about in 15 minutes. So I look forward to our conversation. And Dr. Kars, the floor is yours. We look forward to your remarks. Thank you. 
So I came to the study of pilgrimage actually during my time as a master's student at Notre Dame and my own experiences with pilgrimage while I was there. And I came back from the Holy Land and I was trying to make sense theologically of what had happened, what I had just done. Uh, and more broadly, this question of what Christians are really doing when they go on pilgrimage drove my intellectual life for quite some time. It's still driving it. And I was really in search of theology of pilgrimage, in part because I think the Contemporary Theological Academy has been in love with this image of the pilgrim and pilgrimage, especially as a metaphor for the church, at least since the Second Vatican Council, when there's a resurgence of this language in the literature. But certainly that predates the council significant. But I really struggled to find many theological writers who were actually taking the practice of pilgrimage seriously in and of itself. This has changed a bit in the last decade, thankfully, with books like Andre is really filling the gap in literature on this topic. What I've discovered in my own quest towards a the theology of pilgrimage is that I, in fact, might be asking the wrong question. And in fact, I'm not really sure at this point that there exists something which can adequately constitute a theology of pilgrimage. As I began to study the phenomenon of pilgrimage, a more fundamental question emerged for me, which is, how is it? Can we take all of these disparate practices of Christians around the world and coherently label them with a single term, which is pilgrimage? The reality is within the Christian tradition, pilgrimage is an inherently plural phenomenon. So let me see if I can illustrate what I mean here. Some pilgrimages can be described, I think, very commonly in some of the categories that Andre provided for us, things like journeys to sacred places. So we might take, for an example, pilgrimages to Tepeyac in Mexico City or to Lourdes or Fatima in Europe. Sometimes pilgrimage is better understood as a journey or a movement within a particular sacred space, like pilgrims who travel around the Holy Land. The modern-day Ignatian Camino is a good example of this, or the civil rights pilgrimages in the American South. Andre's story about this pilgrimage in Flint, I think, are good examples of this kind of moving within these spaces. Other historical models of pilgrimage have thought about pilgrimage primarily as in terms not of kind of movement through a place, but a time of journeying with the physical destination, if it exists at all, and it didn't always, serving primarily to mark the end of the time of pilgrimaging. So I think that in modern days, the Camino pilgrimage in Spain often functions as a good example of this, pilgrims talk about the journey being the point and the shrine of St. James at the end is important, but that's, it's important because it marks the end of the, of the period of pilgrimage. And it's less important than say it was in the medieval times as a sacred space in and of itself. We can also think of the Irish peregrinatios for whom displacement, this kind of perpetual journeying either by land or by sea was adopted as a temporary or permanent way of life. We can think of medieval pilgrimages assigned by confessors that were more akin to earlier juridical practices of exile, where a sinner was assigned to pilgrimage for a set period of time. Um, whether or not a destination was included in that kind of varied. These penances, by the way, were oftentimes given for things like stealing something valuable for a church or doing very kind of weird sexual acts that became public. It wasn't a common penance, but existed. Finally, we might think of pilgrimages that have as their destination not a sacred place, but actually a sacred person. So we can think about early Christian pilgrims who sought out the Amas and Abbas in the Palestinian desert, or journeying to the tombs of the martyrs, or pilgrims today who are making their way to World Youth Day 
to see the Pope. The Pope is really the kind of object and the community of people there rather than any particular place. And these categories aren't kind of siloed categories, right? Oftentimes these overlap. So we can think about, there's this great example of an American-Canadian pilgrimage that happened in 1898. And the pilgrims went to Lourdes and to Rome. And it was billed as a visit to a sacred site and then a visit to bring comfort to the Pope. I think Andre's example of the canoe pilgrimage, right, that was both going to the shrine of St. Terry and had this piece of being in relationship and attending to the different indigenous communities in Canada is another nice example where you have a kind of a destination as a place, but also a destination as a person or a community. Even if we can narrow down within these categories, each pilgrimage route or tradition develops in very unique ways. It has its own set of rituals, its own destination, its own way that the pilgrim community is ordered. You have something like the Camino in Spain that is, has this kind of egalitarian ordering that the Turners describe. But you also have pilgrimages, for example, in Mexico that are very still hierarchically ordered by the bishops and the leader, the ecclesial leaders in those communities. So you have these communities that are ordered in all sorts of different ways, depending on the pilgrimage, the time, the place, even within that, who's going and who's organizing the pilgrimage. But what's really curious is, well, there have been periodic efforts by church leaders to norm pilgrim practices in some way, either on local or universal levels. It's really pretty impressive how impotent most of these efforts have been, because pilgrimage at the end of the day belongs to the pilgrims. Uh, who are making this pilgrimage and trying to corral or herd or norm or even create a discourse that can contain these pilgrims is a bit like herding cats, to use a very overused metaphor, or to suggest a, a more theological interpretation, trying to create this, this normative theology of pilgrimage is like trying to tame the spirit, which has a habit of blowing where it will. So as a theologian, I kept coming up against this wall. Whatever I wanted to say about pilgrimage theologically always had to be qualified with the phrase, except when it doesn't. And now when I think about it, this has probably become my mantra as a liturgical scholar in general, and it probably relates back to this project. I really couldn't find a theology or a system of kind of categorizing or speaking about all of these practices that Christians label and understand as pilgrimage that really could account for the variety and the plurality of these practices. Because pilgrimage is a practice which frequently escapes our kind of order and our systems and our theological discourses. For the nerds in the room, the Jesuit scholar Michel de Certeau describes these sort of practices that escape or can't find a place within our systems of space or thought as tactics or as these cries. It's the remainder of things that are left over after our systems have been established that still exist and are present, but can't really be captured or expressed within the categories that are available to us. So let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Early in this project, I was at a conference and a woman came up to me during a break and asked me about my research. I told her I was researching pilgrimage and she got very excited and she launched into this story that lasted most of the rest of the 20 minute break. And she described her five-week pilgrimage on the Camino in Spain. And she told the story in a fascinating way. It wasn't linear, right? It didn't go from first to next. She bounced around as she was talking with this exuberance about these deeply meaningful experiences she'd had as a pilgrim that stretched from blisters to encounters with people to nights full of stars to these kind of quiet moments spent with God in a little village church or chapel. It, these stories are common among those pilgrims who walk the Camino. And... As she's rehearsing this deeply religious spiritual journey, I think she finally realized she'd been talking for a while 
And she pulled back and she directed a question my way. And she asked me, what about pilgrimage I was interested in? Or what about pilgrimage I was working on? And I told her I was trying to develop a theology of pilgrimage. And without missing a beat, she looked at me and she said, oh, I'm Catholic, but I'm not practicing. I found on the wake of a 20-minute story about her pilgrimage, this comment that she wasn't practicing, so curious. And I wanted to probe a little further, but of course the break ended and we had to back inside for the next session. And I never saw this woman again. And so I was just left with this comment still ringing in my ears. I knew what she meant, or at least I'm pretty sure I knew what she meant by this comment, um, which is that when she said I'm Catholic, but I'm not practicing, she meant I don't go to mass regularly. But the categories of Catholic practice seemed to be incapable, at least for her, of including her pilgrimage practice, however Catholic her practice appeared to me. So within the confines of how we talk about the church as a pilgrim people, her experience, her practice of pilgrimage erupted almost as this kind of narrative cry that could find no place within kind of her categories or discourses about church and what it meant to be a practicing Christian. And yet it still announced its existence in this moment. It still existed within these spaces. So the record, I don't think it's a coincidence that in our day and time, the popularity of pilgrimage seems to be increasing. The popularity in our pews or of our pews is decreasing. This is true in both mainline and Catholic churches. I think it expresses some of pilgrimage as this cry in our church that somehow escapes the categories that we've been able to establish for it. And one of the responses, the response that I had initially pursued was to try to create a space for that. But now I'm not convinced we can, or at least ought to, try to create this theology of pilgrimage. In so much as we can speak of a theology of pilgrimage, I find that the best we can do is to see pilgrimage as this remainder, as this a cry that escapes our more systematic attempts at corralling it, whether we're talking theologically or liturgically or ecclesially. And instead, I've started to think about pilgrimage not as a practice in need of a theology, but as a practice of theologizing that is worthy of our attention. So we could ask, what is the theology of this pilgrimage or that pilgrimage that is being expressed and made present and lived out in the world? This isn't a particularly novel way of thinking for a liturgical theologian who locates herself within an intellectual tradition that understands liturgical celebration as one of the ways that our church does theology. Uh, and in fact, my work on pilgrimage really rests on the claim that the church ought to recognize pilgrimage as part of its liturgical repertoire and part of its liturgical life. Taking that as our framework, one of the things that liturgical theologians attend to regularly is how our liturgies form us into communities, form us into a people. That is how they constitute church in a specific time and place. As I think about or read the kind of title for this webinar, Becoming a Pilgrim People, it seems to me it's really a question about how we become church, how we become a pilgrim people and ecclesial people through the practice of pilgrimage. One of the things that I found particularly interesting as I've looked at these different pilgrimage traditions is the formation of pilgrim communities. And Andre talked a bit about this a few minutes ago. These communities differ oftentimes from our normative ecclesial communities, from our dioceses and our parishes in many ways. And in other ways, they differ not at all. It, it, again, it really depends. But one of the ways that I think pilgrimage communities, the pilgrim church differs, is that these communities are typically temporary and they're always changing and in flux because they're constituted purely by the act of pilgrimaging together. 
Sometimes this pilgrimaging together is constituted by the physical proximity of pilgrims to one another, traveling on a bus, walking together on a road, staying together in hotels or hostels or semi-trailers parked along the side of the road. But other times pilgrims travel alone and the proximate community is more eschatological. They become part of the pilgrim community throughout time who has made this journey or bathed in these waters or somehow left their mark on this place. The pilgrim community then, whether we conceive of it either as imminent or eschatological, in fact becomes a sort of liturgical realization of the church in the world, something that we might, I think, appropriately call the pilgrim church. And unlike the church that is constituted in the celebration of the Eucharist, the pilgrim church is a church whose rituals and orders are rarely written and instead passed on in practice from body to body, from mouth to mouth from pilgrim to pilgrim, with much more flexibility to reimagine and recreate how we go as we go. So the pilgrim church doesn't exist as this kind of separate or antithesis apart from the more official or institutional or liturgical expressions of the church, but rather it exists in and among them, not entirely being a part of them. The practice of pilgrimage in all of its plurality and chaos and messiness then is actually a practice of the church constituting itself in the kind of betwixt and between spaces of our church and of our world. I think this is evident in some of the examples of pilgrimage that, that Andre shared, the example of pilgrimage that some of you in this community are preparing to make, these pilgrimages for healing and reconciliation. And while there's no lack of resources in the tradition, and Andre did a beautiful job of highlighting a number of these, there's no lack of resources from which we can draw as we plan and organize and execute these different pilgrimages, there's also no blueprint. There isn't an order, there isn't a set of rubrics that we must follow in order for our journey to somehow count as pilgrimage or count as good pilgrimage. But while there is no one way to go, there is no kind of ideal way to make a Christian pilgrimage, how we go matters deeply. So these pilgrimages for reconciliation and healing seem to me to be an ecclesial faith response to the signs of the time. And this faith response requires a certain kind of creativity. When I first spoke with Dan about the event today, Dan posed the question to me like this, how can pilgrimage support our conversation from white supremacy towards solidarity as we work to create a more inclusive and welcoming church? What a fascinating and wonderful question. But may I suggest to you today that pilgrimage is not a tool or a strategy to aid us in the work of creating a more inclusive church. It has the potential to be a ritual liturgical instantiation, however temporary or fleeting, of that more inclusive church or not. So in my last couple of minutes, I don't want to give you a theology of pilgrimage or a blueprint for building a better pilgrimage, but rather to provoke in those here today the creative task of imagining and then constituting a pilgrimage, and thus a pilgrim church in the world. So I turn the question back to you. What kind of church would you like to be? And how can we, in our pilgrimaging, become that church? The church has found an image of itself in pilgrim practices for millennia. In the letter to Dianetus, which is actually an anonymous homily from the second century, the preacher describes the church as the pilgrim journeying in the world, but not of the world, or existing and being and dwelling in the world, but not of the world. This is the kind of resident alien that Andre referred to earlier. The preacher was contemplating the pilgrim church, again, as people who are living in these spaces. 
but we're not of the spaces. That image of the pilgrim church didn't make as much sense after Constantine's Edict of Toleration. And the medieval church developed a different kind of image of the church's pilgrim. So in this medieval image of the pilgrim church, it imagined the church not as the pilgrim itself, but actually as the institutes of hospitality for weary pilgrims making their way through this very inhospitable world. This image comes directly from the systems of pilgrim infrastructure that frequently sprung up around shrines and holy places, sometimes on common routes used by pilgrims to get to these places. These were oftentimes monasteries, other houses of hospitality that served pilgrims on their way. I was reading the rule of St. Benedict with my students this past week, and they were marveling at the hospitality that was recommended, really required of the monks living in these spaces. So institutions like these monasteries or these hospices provided material care for pilgrims, as well as spiritual care, guidance, all manner of help on their journey. These were places of stability and places of safety that served those who had chosen to become unstable and placeless and vulnerable for a time. Those who had more offered to it, those who had more offered it to those who had less. And those in power and authority cared ideally in love for those who were vulnerable. This is a really beautiful ecclesiology that is not so different, I think, from Francis, the way that Francis talks today about the church as a field hospital. There's also something deeply Christological and Eucharistic about this vision of the church as host, welcoming the pilgrim as Christ welcomes us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. But I do want to call your attention and ask you to notice that in this vision, who the church is and who the church is for are not the same. This is a church for pilgrims, not a church of pilgrims. So the church then becomes constituted in this way and understands itself through their welcome and their care for the stranger and pilgrim, but not in the stranger and pilgrim themselves. So what are we to make of this? Because I have a critical bent to me, I look at people like Jacques Derrida. And Derrida has this fascinating little essay where he reflects on the limits of hospitality as a social construction. And he's titled this essay, Hospitality. So he observes this kind of relationship of host-guest is predicated on an imbalance of power between two parties. The host has the power to welcome or not, to offer material comfort to the guest, food or restroom, a place for the night or not. Even within these actions, it's the host, not the guest, that determines what is offered and how much. And the guest, on the other hand, is in a position of vulnerability and powerlessness. And when this power dynamic changes, so does their relationship. The use of the image of the Pilgrim Church at Vatican II represents an intentional reversal of this model. The council extended the invitation for the church to recognize itself as that which is constituted not in the host, the pilgrim host, and the stability and authority and institutions and texts and structures, but also in the vulnerable stranger and the traveler, in the unpredictable kind of messy chaos of those who Christ redeemed while they were and are still sinners. So in seeing the church itself as pilgrim, this other image invites the church to become a guest of the world sanctifying it, not by controlling it, but by bringing a message of hope within it. These offer kind of two examples, I think, of how we might make sense of and think about the pilgrim church. But ultimately, the work, I think, is a creative work of the pilgrims themselves. So I'll leave you simply with this question. Liturgical life is the revelation of Christ and the church in our time. If pilgrimage is part of that liturgical life, which Christ, which church is most needed in our time and place today? 
And what kind of pilgrim church will you be? Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Karst. That was wonderful. And Father Andre as well. If, if I invite you to join us again, here we are. Great. So much to reflect on, so much to, to consider, and so little time in which to do it. So speaking of time and place as pilgrimage locations, there's, there's a lot to, to engage with here. We have questions coming in. Maybe we can start off with something that I hope in light of, Layla, your presentation, it doesn't become a question of too much normalization or, or control. But to both of you, one of the things that with Andre, you're highlighting from the tradition, these characteristics of memory and place, embodiment, movement, encounter, and, and Layla talking about the way that pilgrimage functions not only geographically and spatially, but also temporally as well, that it opens up a whole horizon of understanding what pilgrimage may or may not mean. So this is an incredibly basic question, but for those who might ask themselves, what constitutes a pilgrim? or one on pilgrimage, as opposed to, for instance, a tourist, like the same person may be in the Holy Land or Rome or the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And maybe in just a few reflections, what, what do, how would each of you respond to something like that? Or is it too normalizing? Andre, you want to take this one? Uh, yeah, I can get started. But uh, no, I think that Leila made a very good point about the complexity of the phenomena the plural of pilgrimage. So it's difficult to simply pinpoint. A lot of people have strong opinions as to what constitutes a real pilgrimage. If you ask people on the Camino, they say it's only walking that will be the real pilgrimage. If you're going by bus, that's not a real pilgrimage. Anyway, so there's a lot of For me, in a way, I think that there's a decision that one has to make to say, I am on a pilgrimage. Because from the exterior, as you mentioned, you can visit St. Peter's Basilica as a tourist, which is, and there's nothing wrong with that, just to be clear. Or you can visit that as a tourist. From the outside, you won't necessarily know who's who. And also that something can happen while on pilgrimage or while on a touristic visit where one becomes a pilgrim. And so I think that element of certainly seeking, that element of journey, that element of an interior journey as well. So these are kind of markers, but they're not norms. And I think I really appreciate Leila's caution on that, that there's something that escapes in the phenomenon. And even if you want to pinpoint it, because we want to try to understand it, we never, we can never capture it completely. So I think that there's in a way a decision for someone to make to say, I am on a pilgrimage or and being open even to the personality of becoming a pilgrim. Because one can be a pilgrim for one day within one's own city or can go for months walking from Walsingham. Yeah, it's easy to pinpoint. Nalar, do you have some ideas on I agree. Yeah, I do. I in part, I'm always curious because this is such a big question, I think, that comes up frequently. And what is the anxiety behind trying to distinguish between a pilgrim and a tourist? And I think it has something to do with this kind of concern about the way that the commodification of our religious practice continues to exist. This is not a new problem that's associated with the modern world. Souvenirs developed in the Holy Land because people were biting off pieces of the true cross when it was brought out on Good Friday or breaking pieces off buildings because they wanted a piece to take back with them. And people were like, well, just sell them things. There are these whole autonomies of places for pilgrims to stay and to support these that go all the way back to the beginning of the tradition. Tony Alonso has this beautiful book called Commodified Communion that kind of wrestles with the commodification of our different practices within the Eucharist and helps us to see, like, 
even our kind of most deeply held religious practices, even when they're practiced, have this element of commodification to them. It's part of being incarnate as a church in the world. So this kind of need to separate tourists and pilgrims, as I think, as Andre said, it gets complicated, right? Like people could be both or people might be one or the other. I think within the context of thinking about something like the pilgrim church, I would say maybe one of the things that makes someone a pilgrim is their identification with the larger Christian tradition or the community as part of the reason why they go, like how they locate themselves as part of an ecclesial community or not. Um, But beyond that, I think pilgrimage is caught up in the tourist commodification and industry, and it always has been, right? Part of the marvel for me is that is the way that the God is still found in that space rather than this effort of trying to purify the space so that God can be found. That's, thank you both. I'm tempted to, to continue this line of conversation because it's fascinating. And I, just maybe to plant the seed and turn to some other questions of this question about can there be such a thing as a secular pilgrimage? There are, some scholars suggest, secular liturgies. Maybe that's a shiny object to tempt Layla at some point to, to develop <laughs> further. But I don't want to miss some of these other questions that have come in, including one that speaks right to the heart of this pilgrimage series. And this question is as follows. Andre mentioned that reaching the end of your destination is not the end of the journey. Do you think that statement relates to racial injustice in today's culture? I think there's, first of all, we have to be on the way. That's the first thing. And will there be an end to all racial injustices? One can hope for that, but certainly what one can do as collective, on a collective pilgrimage or as as an individual pilgrim is to make sure that we're we're on the road. And it's mostly also the connection between discrete pilgrimages, like to go to a place or to do to go on a journey either individually or with other people. I think it feeds into a larger sense of journeying that pilgrimage is for which pilgrimage is a useful metaphor. And I think with that sense of a pilgrimage of life and all those kind of things. But to keep that sense of churning, I think is very, very important. Yeah. So that that's how it will, I would approach that. Hopefully pilgrimage goes beyond being simply a moment or a parenthesis in one's life and kind of nurture a fundamental attitude. I think that the pilgrim church, uh, we know that we'll be on the way until we reach the heavenly Jerusalem. The journey continues. Yeah. Yeah, I went to the eschatological place as well. There's really something eschatological to all of our liturgies and our practices. And I, despite the necessity of us working in this world towards racial reconciliation and racial justice, I think there's an eschatology to that project as well. And so these destinations are also starting points for what's next in our pilgrimages and in our liturgies, right? The mass has ended, go. The pilgrimage has ended, go. And that go is an eschatological hope, right? As well as an eschatological kind of patience of saying the work is never quite completed and it won't be without the intervention of God. Thank you both for that. I think we have time for maybe one more. And this question begins with a statement. Our questioner wrote, first, this is an all-cast star, an all-star cast, excuse me, of pilgrimage experts. And I couldn't agree more with our viewer that we're very fortunate to have these two theological experts on pilgrimage. And the question is as follows. What do we need to do to develop the theology of embodiment in connection to pilgrimage? And I hear both resonances with both of your presentations. So maybe each of you can respond to that. What do we need to do to develop a theology of embodiment? And I see here a contrast with that theology of pilgrimage that, Layla, you talked about initially setting out to to develop. Do you want to go first? 
Sure, because I, I hope you have an answer, Andres. What I actually immediately started thinking was something that, that really exploded over the pandemic, which is these virtual pilgrimages and the ways that those raise new questions about embodiment. I do not think what we are doing now is disembodied. But I think it presses that question further and challenges us to create and to think about embodiment as it relates to practices in some new ways. And I don't quite, I don't quite know what that is, but I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I liked in, in Lila's presentations many things, but also the, the emphasis on the practice and to see how as theologians were invited to, to start by looking at the practices, even of pilgrimage. Because it's a popular devotion. Very often pilgrimage originate by popular reclaim, and then they live or die by being practiced, by being done. And so to start there, to look at what are the rituals that are performed, what, what they signify. So what is um, the life of the Christians telling us? What is the people of God telling us in their practice of the faith? With regard to, because rituals are embodied practices, like you're doing something, you're making something, you're putting rocks there, you're creating a little cross in there. And so there's something very tactile of our faith that sometimes as theologian or church authority, we prefer to stay at a distance of, or we don't see. And so I think that already to pay attention to that and to encourage that sense of creativity and recognize that. I think would be ways to foster that, that theology of embodiment. And it, again, the link with the COVID-19 has make us, made us aware of that need to, to connect in, in meaningful ways and in-person ways. Virtual things are wonderful, like this webinar that opens up a lot of possibilities. We also must take into consideration incarnation because we're a very embodied religion. And so that's really very much in line with the core of our faith. Any other closing remarks on that front there? No? Okay. Thank you. Thank you both. I'm afraid just for the sake of time, we're going to have to stop there and more questions that come. I think there's great interest in what both of you shared and has, you, you both have given us much food for reflection and further consideration. So thank you for taking the time to be with us at this webinar. And I want to put into the, the chat box there, for folks, a link to the Medieval Institute of the University of Notre Dame's website where you can find more information about forthcoming uh, programs. I'm also going to share here. You can see the flyer. I want to highlight again that this particular webinar was co-sponsored by the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame and the Center for Spirituality here at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, with additional support from the Institute for Scholarship in the Liberal Arts, College of Arts and Letters. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't also give a shout out of thanks to Dr. Annie Killian, a Dominican sister and the Public Humanities Fellow at the Medieval Institute. For those who are with us and are interested in continuing this conversation on pilgrimage, we invite you to the next webinar in our series, which will take place on Friday, March 3rd at 12 noon Eastern time. We are privileged to have joining us the artist Kelly Lattimore, who will speak with us about sacred art and the journey toward justice. Video recordings, of course, of previous webinars, including this one, and links to the upcoming events are all posted on medieval.nd.edu slash pilgrimage, or you can follow the link that's in the chat.
one more time, thank you both to Layla and Andre for joining us, for giving us so much to reflect on and to consider. And we hope to see you all in a future webinar and in our pilgrimage experience. Have a wonderful afternoon and weekend.